In New Jersey, we found some key Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Perino. And I'm Casey McLean. This week, we're going to talk about coronavirus, and then we'll take you to Murphy's Corner. And we're going to talk about phase two of the reopening. After that, we'll talk about the measures in the New Jersey State Assembly to decriminalize marijuana. Then I'll move over to talking about my favorite corporate virtue signaling in the past week. <laughs> After that, we'll talk a little bit about the protests, but I'm going to save that for my segment later because I'm going to go into more detail. Um, Trump threatened to send in the military uh, last week. I don't know if any if anyone saw that. That's pretty insane and dictatorial. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And I'm going to provide some resources where you can see how your police in your town has been weaponized and like how much stuff they got from the Department of Defense. So Not after the, the Army surplus store, but yeah. the actual. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, after the headlines, as I said, I'll, I'll share my story about going to the protest in case you will share hers. And we'll talk a little bit more about the context of, of these protests and what's been going on in the past week uh, around the country because it's pretty, it's pretty major. And after that, Casey's going to talk about Thomas Edison's ghost, right? <laughs> yeah. His ghost phone. It's ghost bone, uh, ghost bone. Ending this on a lighter, more haunted spiritual note. <laughs> All right, so moving into the coronavirus update, as I like to do, I'll give you total numbers now. The numbers. Let's do it. Let's break it down. So total confirmed amount of cases are 164,000 in New Jersey, and we have 12,176 deaths as of June 6. So it looks like it's still trending downwards the last few days from really May 30th onward has been less than uh, a thousand infection uh, new infections a day which is good that, that's a good trend we've been under uh, a pretty severe lockdown for a couple of months now so i kind of expect this hopefully this continues and then we can all go back to our normal lives yeah whatever that means <laughs> yeah exactly oh i do want to bring up so NJ.com had a pretty good article on the 6th titled, These are the New Jersey towns where coronavirus cases grew the most in the past week. I thought it was interesting because it's not really the areas I would have expected. So the article states, in the past week, the town of 5,114 in Sussex County went from 200 cases to 226 cases. That's an additional 4.4 cases per 1,000 residents, the highest figure of any community in the state. Among towns of more than 1,000 people, Andover Township is the only one from Sussex County in the top 10. The state as a whole added 0.6 cases of COVID-19 per 1,000 people in the seven-day period. And they have a chart that breaks down from May 27th to June 3rd, the biggest increase in COVID-19 cases. And I'll just list the, the townships. It's Andover Township in Sussex County, Chesterfield in Burlington County, West Caldwell in Essex County, Elizabeth in Union County, Boontown Township or Boonton Township in Morris County, Asbury Park in Monmouth, Hamilton in Atlantic, Maple Shade in Burlington County, uh, Patterson in Passaic, and Carney's Point in Salem. Uh, I thought it was interesting because Berkman County is uh, where the state's outbreak originally was started in, in uh, early March, and it was also where the most amount of cases were in the state forever, uh, for, for a while, I mean. And now we have, it seems like it's spreading more evenly throughout the state, is, is, is my point. Sorry. That, yeah. <laughs> but I was like trying to think of how to, I was trying to think of how to word it. I guess that's good, because it kind of means that the lockdown. It's and, not. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's concentrated so much. It's more like dissipated. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. 
Yeah. So that is good-ish. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The article does note, uh, which I think is important, that keep in mind that testing availability has fluctuated throughout the state during the course of the outbreak. It's possible for a surge in cases to be more related to a rise in the availability of tests rather than an indicator of a sudden outbreak. So yeah. perhaps a way we can understand this is that Bergen County was the site of the outbreak in New Jersey. Uh, so most of the resources originally were spent testing in there. And it's not that the other counties didn't have it as much. It's just that they weren't prioritized because Bergen was hit so much harder. And now that we're test, now that it's declining in Bergen, the capacity to test in other states has increased. Uh, maybe the uh, other counties. I mean, so maybe that's a better way of understanding these numbers. That seems to, to me to be the case. Yeah, and it's what we talk about every episode is that test availability, the ability for people to continuously get tested so if you think you were exposed how long do you have to wait until the virus incubates in you that you would test a positive result and then you know when is it going to show up and when do you get those results all these different factors come into play and if you've gotten tested once like say you maybe went to a protest over the weekend or during the last week and then you incubate and then you get tested. And if your test results are negative, then you go back out and do something else. You could get reinfected. And it's a habit of constantly testing yourself that uh, I think is not the norm. And it's yeah. not it's not presented as an, op- an option. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> if there's yeah. a limited amount of tests and you expose yourself and you expose yourself in a way that some, you know, right wing <laughs> Republicans might say is, you know, silly, a.k.a. protesting police brutality and the oppression of a race in our country, will that test be available to you? You know what I mean? In comparison to someone else who's been, you know, quote unquote, quarantining for, you know, the right amount of time. So we just need to make testing not political and available repetitively for everyone. Yeah, that's the worst part (laughs) is the entire coronavirus thing from the beginning has been politicized in the U.S. So like just believing it's a a real thing is a political act. Unfortunately, I, I think you're right. It's pretty much undeniable that there will probably be in, an increase in infections throughout all the states where there's been protests. It just seems to me like logically that's what's going to happen. I'm not saying that means that the protests shouldn't have happened, just to be clear. It's just yeah. something that we have to acknowledge and can't just like pretend that won't happen. Anyway, moving on. Uh, what's going on over in Murphy's Corner? Murphy's Corner. <laughs> In Murphy's Corner, he's passed two executive orders since we last recorded. And when we last recorded, he passed the executive order 149. Governor Murphy signs executive order allowing the resumption of child care services, youth day camps, and organized sports over the coming week. That was on the 30th of May. So up next, we have on the 3rd of this month, June. Surprise, everyone. It's June. Executive order 150. Governor Murphy announces outdoor dining protocols and process to expand premises for liquor license holders. So I'm going to read the press release for that. So Governor Murphy, like I said, signed the executive order permitting that. And it accompanies an executive directive from the New Jersey Department of Health that lays out health and safety standards that food or beverage establishments are required to follow. In addition, the governor announced a special ruling by the New Jersey Division of Alcoholic Beverage Control, creating a pathway for liquor license holders to expand the premises on which they may serve alcohol, meaning outdoor dining. So he says, quote, restaurants and bars throughout New Jersey have been 
immensely cooperative with the necessary public health measures that were placed upon them while battling the COVID-19 pandemic. Allowing outdoor dining and the expansion of alcohol serving areas will allow restaurants and bars to begin welcoming customers back while continuing to comply with the necessary social distancing guidance. So this is good. This is good news. It means that we're slowly getting back to normal. You know, restaurant dining was something that I think was a part of everyone's experience in New Jersey. And with this, I'm assuming, I know some wineries are reopening this month, part of phase two. So they'll have outdoor food and beverage services available. So that's good news. And then we have executive order 151. Governor Murphy signs executive order extending public health emergency in New Jersey. So that was passed on the 4th of June. And the press release for this, it's basically the normal extension that we've seen month over month. And he said, quote, as we move forward with the restart and recovery plan, maintaining access to all resources available is essential. Extending the public health emergency allows us to continue to work to save lives while safely and securely reopening our state's economy. So that's it for his executive orders. And is this the time we talk about phase two? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I have an update on more things that are reopening. He stated the motor vehicle offices and road testing are returning this month. Uh, From his Twitter, he tweeted, uh, motor vehicle commission update June 15th, drop off and pickup services will restart at New Jersey Motor Vehicle. On June 29th, uh, motor vehicle walk-in customer service, road tests, licenses, registrations are scheduled to restart. So that's, that's good. That's not bad. Yeah. And I have this article from CBS New York titled New Jersey to begin phase two reopening on June 15th, Murphy says. So beginning on the 15th, restaurants can begin outdoor dining and non-essential retail stores can allow customers inside. This is a miracle (laughs) for anyone who likes to to browse in a home goods, a TJ Maxx home goods. This is, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel for us (laughs) home goods shoppers. I wonder what this is going to mean for the economy. So, like, I'm sure there will be some reemployment as people are, uh, you know, going back to work uh, for the businesses that survive. But we also saw Trump was touting a decrease of like two to four percent in the uh, unemployment rate, and then uh, found out that the numbers were literally cooked. And <laughs> uh, we literally found that out. Yeah, that that April's numbers. Uh, I said before that April's unemployment rate was around 15%. Turns out those numbers were cooked, and it was closer to 20% in April. They like purposely excluded certain uh, categories uh, that were normally included. And 15 was already shocking enough. <laughs> yeah. So it looks like we're still at like something like 17% unemployment or whatever, which is still really high. And but I, I, in New Jersey, the official rate is around 15 right now. I imagine it'll drop to. I don't know, a percent or two, but I just don't see people spending a ton of money right now and in the coming months, uh, even if there was no coronavirus. And I mean, people are acting like the coronavirus doesn't exist anymore anyway. So like, it's probably not even a factor in most people's like decision-making. I don't know. I don't know as a fact, but I'm just, I don't see for the reopening, reopening meaning recovery. Some, some have said that the economy reopening is going to, I mean, it's obviously going to be a slow crawl, but people are going to do what they say is revenge spending. So not being able to shop and not being able to have elective surgeries, we're going to see a huge like rapid fire spike as soon as people are able to spend whatever they can and what they deem essential for their household. So for example, 
salons, like, I don't know if you've had this, but I had a, a hair appointment booked back in March and my salon called me to say, you know, everything's shut down. So we'll call you back when we start reopening and reschedule you guys first. You already had your appointments booked. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm bald. I don't have a hair appointment. You don't have a hair appointment. But my dentist and my, uh, my salon have both reached out to me to reschedule my appointments. So that's going to, you're going to see people not only re, re-upping what they would normally spend, just like on frivolous stuff, like it's like a TJ Maxx binge shop, but people are also going to be booking their appointments for, you know, non-essential uh elective surgeries what have you um yeah but i think there's also going to be like we're about to have a huge wave of foreclosures and evictions for because uh, as soon as the restrictions that are lifted in place for foreclosing and evicting people all the banks and landlords are going to put out notices immediately to pay (laughs) up and people aren't going to have the money to do that and then that's going to affect the economy uh, deeply well that's something to call your elected officials about you know we we talk about it every time we were looking at the Legiscan, every time we look at Murphy's executive orders, these things that are put in place, like some of them are extreme, like uh, the not returning goods regulation that they passed where you can't return certain items, which made sense because once you open it, once you put your hands on it, it's now contaminated basically. So that made sense, but you're going to want to pull back that order once things start reopening. But things like, you know, eviction and uh, foreclosures, all that kind of stuff, we need to make sure that those laws stay in place until people and the economy get back on their its feet. You know, it's uh, it's actually really easy to solve to especially the mortgage stuff. You could either just pay for it, right? Or, but uh, if if the government doesn't want to do that, they can just mandate that all those missed payments just get put at the end of the loan. So it just extends yeah. the loan instead of owing it as back payment. And, that's what um, they did with the student loans, right? They uh, Yeah, pay- yeah, pretty much. That's exactly what they did. So uh, yeah, uh, but actually it was a little better because we didn't earn interest during that time period. So it's actually, if you were making payments during that, it was the best time to pay student loans. Yeah, that's what we need to start bringing up to our officials. Or Even if you, I don't have a mortgage, but if you want to get involved in, in your local government, this is the opportunity to you know speak up for your neighbors who lost their jobs because of this pandemic. You know, it's a once in a lifetime exactly. situation. So your politicians with elections coming up in November, and that's a big thing that w- was stated in the protest that I went to is remember in November. So if your elected officials aren't going to grant you any kind of reprieve from this financially, then kick them out and put someone in who will. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right. So I wanted to talk about there's a marijuana decriminalization bill that's happening. So we've mentioned before that in November, there's actually a legalization referendum in New Jersey for legalizing marijuana. But due to the protests ahead of that, lawmakers have decided to try to draft a uh, decriminalization bill. So there was a good uh, article in marijuanamoment.net uh, <laughs> written by Ben that, Adlin. That website you subscribe to. <laughs> I subscribe to it, yeah, you know, just to keep it important to know what's going on in the marijuana it, moment. <laughs> it's not, it's not .gov. <laughs> it's not .gov, yeah. So uh, New Jersey lawmakers file a marijuana decriminalization bill ahead of broader legalization referendum, writes Ben Adlin. Under the legislation, those caught for the first time in possession of or distributing up to a pound of marijuana would instead be subject to a written warning with subsequent offenses carrying community service or civil fine of $25. Bill was introduced on Thursday after the 10th consecutive day of nationwide protests against police violence following the killing of George Floyd. All three of the lawmakers sponsoring the bill urged it to be passed in light of the drug war's disproportionate impact on people of color. 
quote, uh, the war on drugs has ravaged communities of color for too long. While we await voter approval of legislation, we cannot forget about those arrested and incarcerated every day on marijuana-related charges. Senator M. Teresa uh, Ruiz says, who serves as the body's president pro tem. She continues, by decriminalizing certain marijuana offenses, we can prevent countless unnecessary arrests and the attendant legal consequences over the next seven months. The measure, uh, S-2535, would also set up what lawmakers call a new form of virtual expungement, which would automatically deem certain marijuana-related convictions not to have occurred, an act that they said will remove the need for people to petition a court for an expungement. That's really good. Wow. All records relating to unlawful possession or distribution would be sealed, with the other provisions aiming to prevent authorities from discussing expunged records or discriminating against people with marijuana arrests, charges, or convictions. Marijuana and other cannabis products would remain illegal under the bill, with possession and distribution remaining technically unlawful acts despite the lighter penalties. That's generally the difference between decriminalization and uh, and legalization. So the easiest way to conceive of it, we don't know the difference, is decriminalizing something is like turning it into an offense that's like walking, like jaywalking. Like, you know, you're not going to get uh, arrested or, you know, killed for jaywalking um, by the police if you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but you know, uh, at least you shouldn't. Uh, if, if your military is not uh, policing or your police is not militarized. Yeah, exactly. In normal times, uh, if you're white, but uh, yeah. we'll see. We'll see. I think this is a good measure. It's, it might as well happen now, and then we legalize it in, in November. Why wait? Yeah, and then that wouldn't that wouldn't affect the referendum, right? That would it would still no. be. Yeah. So a, pound... <laughs> a pound's a lot. That's what I thought was super surprised. I thought it was reported wrong. Yeah. Uh, but I try. I, I I looked at that and I should have known that the marijuana moment would definitely know uh, that it was a pound of marijuana. And I just thought that was super funny. Um, <laughs> a pound of marijuana is a lot of marijuana. Yeah, because I'm thinking about my free weights and I'm like, oh, my five pound like free weight. That's it's not heavy, but it's significant. But it's, an I think herb, just a pound, a of, pound of an herb. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's this article dense. noted that some legalization supporters worry that passing decriminalization could deflate public support for November's referendum. I don't see that happening, to be honest. People are going to be at the polls anyway. This is going to be, hopefully, yeah. if people use their common sense, this is going to be a win-win-win for New Jersey. Yeah. Oh, boy. Exactly. So. Remember in November, everyone. Okay, so I wanted to share some of my favorite corporate virtue signaling. If you don't know what that is, you're about to find out. I don't know if everyone notices, every time there's some kind of mass protest, so the original Black Lives Matter protest that happened, wow, I think it was 2012 or 2011. It's been a long time. When was Trayvon Martin killed? I think 2012, so about eight years ago. Famously, there was that tone-deaf Pepsi ad. Yeah, you remember that one? Yeah, Jenner giving a, Give it, a yeah. great riot <laughs> police officer <laughs> a Pepsi, and then and everything then, was okay. Then racial, then racial relations were forever solved in the United States. Yeah, yeah exactly. No brutality after that Pepsi ad. So you think that after all that, you know, corporations would, would would like learn that virtue <laughs> signaling is like cringy and not worth doing. But of course, they never know. They never learn. They just do it to try to either co-opt the movement or uh, just try to get that the liberal cash that people go like, oh wow, Citigroup, <laughs> let me invest with them. They put out a Black Lives Matter. I saw that. I just laughed because Citigroup was in trouble for foreclosing a bunch of Black people's homes in uh, 2008 and 9. So I was like, yeah, they really care about Black people. So I collected uh, three of my favorite corporate virtue signaling. So what's going on right now, if anyone's on Twitter, you've already seen it, guaranteed. Companies are putting out these like black background text with white, uh, black background with white text on it. It's kind of like grayish and they're all like basically saying the same thing. So 
um, I knew things were getting crazy when uh, Call of Duty uh, put out one saying, quote, while we all look forward to playing the new seasons of Modern Warfare, Warzone, and Call of Duty Mobile, <laughs> what? now is not the time. This is real. I'm not making this up. We, are moving, the, we are moving the launches of Modern Warfare Season 4 and Call of Duty Mobile Season 7 to later dates. Right now, it's time for those speaking up for equality, justice, and change to be seen and heard. We stand alongside you. As long as you play Modern Warfare coming out in... <laughs> I just thought it was funny because, like, obviously, like, it's ridiculous that video game companies are putting out these kinds of notices and then also relating it to, like, delayed releases of, of like, scheduled yeah. content because, like, let's be real, like, they just weren't finished the content and then now they're like, oh, we can just detach. It's you also, know. you're seeing it in the music industry. I forgot. Uh, yeah. Like, you're not wanting and you're not wanting to publish anything during this time because if you were to publish you are taking up space from something that's very important, you know? Yeah, that's not how it works. Yeah, it's a very circle. But it's also, you're doing that because you want more sales. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're hoping, that's what the virtue signaling is about. It's about like, oh, like, like they're hoping people see this and go like, oh, wow, I'm going to buy Call of Duty now. And it's just like ridiculous. So I yeah. saw another one. Someone sent me this. It's, uh, <laughs> I had to check to see if it was true. And it was uh, a grinder put out. I know that's the gay Tinder put out. Yeah. Uh, uh, one, and they said, we will not be silent, Black Lives Matter, and then their little statement says, we stand in solidarity with the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement and the hundreds of thousands of queer people of color who log into our app every day. We will not be silent, and we will not be inactive. Today, we are making donations to the Marsha P. Johnson Institute and Black Lives Matter, and urge you to do the same if you can. We will continue to fight racism on Grindr, both through dialogue with our community and zero tolerance tolerance policy for racism and hate speech on our platform. As part of this commitment and based on your feedback, we've decided to remove the ethnicity filter from our next release. So like two things, like cool, at least they're throwing money. That's like better than Call of Duty. But second thing, wow, they had our ethnicity filter? Like what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely wild. Um, but it, oh boy. Go ahead. Um, no, I'm just trying to think of like other corporate entities that have done like a similar thing in the past. And it's interesting that now like, I think Grinder was around back in back in 2008. I don't I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember. I have I have one more that was really good. This is personally my favorite. Okay. Because I'd want to see what their reaction was for each, you know, each protest that was sparked through police brutality. If it was like the same kind of measure with each one, but like no change. Like that's what always makes me upset about seeing these corporate entities speak out because unless they put finance behind it and they track the finances like Mark Zuckerberg put like millions into I think the New York education system yeah and I'm gonna talk the majority about that of it was spent on what was it it was like a uh, consultants and nothing changed so that's my concern about all this money is like you didn't stand up the last time and now you are because everyone's obviously and rightly so outraged but make sure you're just not doing a, a hashtag and an Instagram post and saying you're putting this money in it and then not holding anything accountable. You know, that's yeah. the whole fund police initiative is exactly hold your money accountable. So here's one, here's one more. That's great. I, I swear I'm not making this up. Gushers tweeted gushers wouldn't be gushers without the black community and your voices. We're working with fruit by the foot on creating space to amplify that. We can see you. We stand with you. Black lives what matter. What does that mean? <laughs> exactly black lives matter and so do black voices we are devastated by the murders of george floyd brianna taylor ah ahmed arbery and countless others who have been killed 
We stand with those fighting for justice. It's important that our words match our actions. More to come. We all have a long way to, to go in the fight against racism for systemic change. I just thought it was funny because it's like, what do they mean that Gushers would, wouldn't be Gushers without the black community? That makes no sense at all. Like, it's literally like, was Gushers, Gushers an integral part about over. the racial relations in, uh, in America? Like, no, of course not. This is just like goofy stuff that just doesn't mean anything. And uh, it's just so, I hate virtue signaling because I don't know falls for this shit but obviously people do because i guess it works yeah but i wanted to talk about money right so the financial times had a good chart that broke down corporate donations to the black lives matter movement and other like related causes and i think we do need to be concerned about this the instinct to like want to have large amounts of money coming into these movements i understand is a good one because you're like oh let's see them put their money where their mouth uh their mouth or mouth where their money is money where their mouth is i can't speak and then but the <laughs> The issue Use is, your mouth, Mike. <laughs> yeah, the, the issue is money is control. Like, we know that when things, like, how do I explain this? We can see with every other movement or calls that has ever happened, right? We'll say, like, oh, wow, fossil fuel industry funding these, like, certain environmental groups, uh, environmentalist groups, that's suspicious. Maybe that's why these environmentalist groups don't support, like, <laughs> actual change. And we'll say things like that. Right. And we all recognize yeah. that makes sense. That's that. Or we'll go like, wow, you know, the State Department funneling hundreds of millions of dollars into, like, say, Hong Kong protests. That's immediately suspicious. Like, why are they doing that? <laughs> they clearly have an agenda that's might not be best for Hong Kong people, but is actually just supports U.S. imperialism, things like that. No, we look all at politicians. Look at politicians. Exactly. Politicians, <laughs> where they get their money from. But when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff like that, uh, because the uh, layer of identity po politics, I think people like are afraid to make that connection. But we gotta look at how much money is being spent in this stuff, and and it is suspicious. So you got, according to the uh, Financial Times, a total of 458 million dollars has so far been by corporations been given to various racial justice stuff. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that it's suspicious that or these things are necessarily doing bad stuff. I'm afraid that they're using to using their money and new leverage to dilute the struggle. That is what I'm in fear of. Not the, not the causes themselves, but the the receipts that come with receiving, say, a hundred million dollars from Warner Music or Walmart putting a hundred million dollars over five years uh, to create a new center on racial equity. What does that mean? Is it a new think tank that's going to put out stuff that just benefits Walmart? Well, how many uh, uh, workers at Walmart are black and make pennies? While the CEOs make uh, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Uh, same thing with things like. Amazon. Amazon put $10 million into a bunch of different uh, stuff from the ACLU Foundation to the Brenner, Brennan Center of Justice and so forth uh, into the NAACP. And like, sure, all those things are good. But again, how many of Amazon's employees are are uh, are black and how many of them aren't making a lot of money because of just Amazon's an exploitative company? And then you get stuff like it's even more ridiculous, like Goldman Sachs giving $10 million uh in a donor-advised fund to support leading organizations addressing racial injustice, structural inequity, and economic disparity, that is clearly an attempt to just control the movement. It's Goldman Sachs. They manufactured, uh, or basically, I don't want to say manufactured, they, they helped cause the 2008-9 great financial crisis, which led to millions of Black people's homes being foreclosed and stolen back by the banks. These aren't people that are on our side. That, yeah. uh, like, like we need and to it's, be, it's we need not to just that. it's not just the Black Lives Matter movement. Also, it's you know with Pride, you know with the women's movement. Yes, yeah, they do it with the, everything. With everything, you see corporate entities coming in, funneling in money, 
being able to advertise, get a pat on the back, but you have to look at their corporate structure. Like you have to look at the diversity of their employees, their employees' benefits, their employees' pay, the pay equity, you know, like you have to analyze every single thing from within because it's so much easier for them to get a corporate tax write-off by donating a large sum. But what are they doing day to day? What are they doing after this? Not saying that the protest is going to die down, but you know, we're not going to be protesting every day exactly. for a year. So when, when it's like people who volunteer only on Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know, that's great, but people are heart starving <laughs> around the country in your communities. Children don't have, you know, adequate nutrition and, you know, it's all this stuff where it's, it's every day of every year, these issues are here. What are you doing on the other days where you do not have a spotlight on you? Exactly. Exactly. So corporate virtue signaling, sometimes it's funny, like the examples that I uh, mentioned where it's just clearly empty, nothing, just weird statements on Twitter that have <laughs> absolutely no meaning. And sometimes it's either intentionally or unintentionally malicious in that I'll say unintentionally malicious because sometimes they'll just donate the causes that they like, but it's still beneficial to keeping them in power. So like there's the entire, uh, there's been books written about this. It's called the NGO industrial complex, the you know, non-governmental organization industrial complex. And what they mean by that statement is that non-governmental organizations or nonprofits need funding and then rich people and corporations fund them. But obviously you can't be too radical so much that those corporations hate you because then you, or rich people hate you because then you can't get funding from them, which then means you actually end up being an appendage of their uh, ideological and material power. So I I'm afraid something similar is happening now, but I don't think we're at right now at the stage where these, say, like protests are being diluted or, or, or co-opted. They're extremely militant in like a great way. And they're also, uh, in spite of some looting, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty disciplined too, uh, which I'm, I'm really, it's really exciting. This is an exciting time to, to see this. People are finally fed up with uh, what, what's going on. And I'll talk more about that uh, after the headlines. Up next. <laughs> Up next. So I wanted to just talk briefly about there was, I mean, it's still kind of going on, but it was, pre I don't know how you felt about this, but it was pretty scary last week. Like it was around yeah. Tuesday when Trump said that he was going to send in the military uh, to suppress the protests. If he gave an ultimatum for the governors to, to suppress them. Stop being so within, weak. <laughs> stop being so weak. He wants them to dominate the streets. And then you could see videos in D.C., which was just terrifying, of the National Guard coming in. And yeah. um, that was big. I don't think people realize how huge this is. The uh, last time it happened was, was it 20 years ago with Rodney King? Yeah, yeah. And there's a few things that happened, and it's almost hard to remember because they all it was pretty rapid. So you had that happen. The police are continuing to still riot throughout the country, all over, beating protesters senselessly, which apparently isn't. I love how you said the police are are rioting. <laughs> they they are. They, that's what's, yes. <laughs> it's. Uh, it, it, I it's will accurate. acknowledge that if people if people go and break up businesses, that's what protesters start doing, smashing windows. That's a riot. If police just start unhingedly. Uh, uh, beating senselessly protesters and get tear gassing them for no reason and driving their cars into them and all the other terrible stuff I saw over the past two weeks. Uh, that's, that's rioting. It's like they're, the yeah. police saw that people were protesting against police brutality and, and said like, Oh, you think that's brutal? I'll show you brutal. And then just start going even more brutal. And yeah. Trump's reaction instead of deescalating was to try to escalate even further as like a, a show of force and it's super dangerous because the military is not supposed to be an internal policing apparatus. And 
we we are dangerously getting to that point not only with the the national guard being called in in, in a bunch of states but trump wanting to ha- have live ammunition on the uh soldiers uh so that they would, i mean he was threatening openly to kill them uh what was the statement when the looting starts the shooting starts some people said he was quoting some yeah. uh, racist from like the 60s maybe that's the case i actually think that trump's <laughs> not smart enough to know that that anyone from this from that was saying it and just like Basically, uh, not that great minds think alike, but two racist minds think alike. So that's pretty much what I think happened with Trump. But moving along, what was scary about all this also was we saw Trump invoke the Insurrection Act, which is a uh, act from the early 1800s that basically allows the military to come in to, well, suppress an insurrection. So that's interesting. He was basically classifying the protest as like a rebellion. An unarmed rebellion. An unarmed rebellion, yeah. And... To make matters even scarier, in New York City, a New York judge uh, suspended habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is your right to a fair trial and due process when you're arrested. So the police cannot detain you for longer than 24 hours without cause. Uh, That right has been, as of now, suspended in New York City, where police can detain pretty much anyone without telling them why or without cause for as long as they they want. And that's, uh, lawyers are already trying to challenge this, but that's extremely scary. Uh, The only time that I can remember that habeas corpus was suspended was during the Civil War, and and Lincoln suspended it during, like, basically the areas uh, at the front line, which uh, some people argued even then that that was too extreme. Um, But just to give you an idea of kind of, yeah, how dangerous the situation is. The other thing is Trump made the Antifa, a terrorist organization in the United, a domestic terrorist organization. There's two problems with that. Antifa isn't an organization. It's just <laughs> an idea. A yeah, and it, and Antifa just means anti-fascism or anti-fascist. So uh, there's been reports in New York City and some other states of the FBI, after people getting arrested, the FBI then questioning them in custody, asking them if they have any anti-fascist sentiments or what are their thoughts on Antifa or if they know anyone in Antifa. That's a, this is an exceedingly dangerous time. Um, that is not good. The only correct answer, if anyone's listening to this part, like if it happens <laughs> to you, uh, is uh, I like don't talk to the police. Ask for a lawyer. Your, your Fifth Amendment right. It, it, exactly. Don't um, don't be even a smartass with the with these guys uh, saying like like aren't you anti-fascist? Like I know that's what I, I was thinking. Like that's what I would ask. But then I'm like no, yeah. you don't want to say literally anything to them. You have no idea what they're using this for. I saw police tracking down protesters days after, days after they went to attended a protest to go to their house and arresting them and using the anti-fascist memes that they've posted on Facebook and Twitter as evidence that they are uh, like violent collusionists. Uh, so this is, this is like a scary, t- again, scary time not to be too alarmist, but it is a very alarming thing. And it's, and it's, I don't want to say it's not unprecedented because we've been here before at certain times. You had like the FBI assassinating like Fred Hampton, for instance, and things like that. So we have like, uh, unfortunately, a precedent for this. But people need to be careful. This is this is a crazy time to live in. We need to keep the protests going, but um, we need to propose not just police brutality, but the the whole surveillance state that is basically meant to subject normal people to terror. I mentioned in one of the first episodes about how the FBI. And uh, the NYPD spied on Muslims after 9/11 in 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 New Jersey, and that was a form of a of a terror campaign. And and now they're committing another form of terror campaign, not just the continuation of a terror campaign against Black people, but now they're expanding it to like anti-fascism. And uh, that's troubling. 
it's troubling and alarming because it's the same thing with the war on drugs, the same thing with the, the war on terror, where you're having people be surveilled and arrested on obscure charges and then locked up. And the second that the the 24-hour news cycle, it's not even that anymore, moves on, then those people are forgotten, but they're still in jail. Exactly. You know? Be safe, everyone who's protesting. Not only be safe from the violent police, but also be safe in knowing your rights and knowing what you're going to be confronted with if you are arrested or charged or you hear Antifa. Like I could... <laughs> right. When we first started talking about it, I think it was like two episodes ago or last episode, but I had never heard of it before. <laughs> yeah. So for the, and I did go to a protest, so the idea, the possibility existed of where I could have been arrested for something I didn't even know was a thing. So on a related topic, I wanted to t uh, talk about uh, the weaponization of the police. Um, I'm not going to say too much about this because I think it deserves like its own segment at some point, like the history. Yeah. But th there's a great resource that I want people to see and, and check out. It's called the marshallproject.org. And they have a, uh, a database that you can where you can see what your local agency received from the Department of Defense. And we'll include the link in the show notes. Basically, they take data that was released from the Department of Defense's 1033 program. Now, the 1033 program basically transfers excess military equipment to civil, civilian law enforcement agencies. And it's not yeah, for I, free. What's that? Go ahead. It's not for free. No, it's not for free. It, it, that, yeah, that, that's actually a bad description of it because it's really uh, um, they pay for this military equipment. Is it like a bidding war like how we had with the um, the PPE? <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. But there's so much excess uh, equipment. I'm definitely going to go on this later because there's a there's a uh, book written by Nick Terse that goes all uh, over. He's a, he's a, Nick Terse is an excellent journalist who has done a lot of work on not just uh, U.S. foreign policy, but also the military industrial complex in general. And he wrote a book where he describes basically the amount of waste and excess that the Pentagon has and how that all this excess equipment and different forms of excess like they receive so much money for uh, funding um, propaganda videos that they end up uh, like they'll assist Hollywood and, and, and like demand stuff from that. It's pretty crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I'll have to go into that another time. But like this is how the, our police have become militarized over the course of the past few decades. So since the beginning of this program and the program again signed into law by Bill Clinton, it's 1997, a National Defense Authorization Act. And the breakdown for New Jersey is that we've received about $60.5 million of uh, excess military equipment to different police departments. So I was looking, uh, I couldn't find my police department on here, but I found some close to me. So let me go to, so let's check out, for instance, the Cherry Hill Police Department. They got a lot. <laughs> they received- Cherry uh, Hill, what is, what is Cherry Hill doing with- <laughs> Yeah, why does Terry Hill need uh, $178,000 of military equipment? Let's, go, let's see what they got. So you yeah. click on, you'll click on a uh, department, and it'll give you a breakdown of the things they they've bought and how many. So they bought four 5.56 millimeter rifles, a shipping container to store the munitions, four of them. That looks like it was free, so I guess it came with the uh, military uh, the rifles. Months. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> A, a generator, a, a diesel generator, truck utilities, a forklift for a hundred thousand dollars, and you can just 
break down a bunch of stuff. So we'll look at Tom's River. Tom's River is kind of funny because they received a lot of stuff too. Tom's River overall spent about $131,000 on a bunch of stuff. I'm not going to list all of it, but you can see, for instance, that like they bought two flagpoles. Some of it's like whatever, like just random stuff. Like a flag, two flagpoles for $18,000. I mean, that seems a little crazy. dollars For a flagpole, yeah. Are they like um, really tall flagpoles? I haven't been to the police <laughs> station, so maybe... Uh, but they bought a bunch. You can see they have like military riot shields. They have seven millimeter uh, uh, rifle. They have a bunch of different stuff like the intercom communications uh, systems, some power tools. There's a bunch of ammunition that they bought. It's 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 interesting because it, I mean some places bought like a lot of stuff. So you, you go to like Titten Falls and uh, that it's two million dollars they spent on uh, for their police department. Two million dollars. Two million dollars. Yeah. Falls? Yes, yes, that's right. And it's just a bunch of, you can just see just how much, like, this is your taxpayer money, your taxpayer money being spent on weaponizing the police to to oppress you. Yeah. So uh, they don't was, need this stuff. What was the rifle that you were saying? Been, it doesn't tell you what kind of rifle, it just tells you that, uh, like, what the millimeter of it is. So, like, some of them will, like, be a seven millimeter rifle or a five millimeter rifle. Uh, I don't know enough about guns to really comment like what that could possibly be, but yeah, because my thing is that it's a military grade weapon. Yeah, like that's it's what not, it is. you know, it, it doesn't make any sense why you need to have that. Yeah, and this doesn't have everything. Um, so for instance, my town's not on here, but I know that after 9/11, my my little town that has I think 10,000 people in it i received like a mobile like military command thing like it looks like it looks like a tank but it's not a tank uh <laughs> they, they, like i haven't ever seen them use it which is good but it's it's one of those things where it's like they didn't need that like like yeah. what the hell do they need that for why did they spend it, money on that listen um, like they're they're impulse buy they were at the checkout and they're like uh and they saw the recommended for you section they're like you know what yeah <laughs> Yeah, so for instance, you can see tank. that the, uh, the Lakehurst State Police bought a armored truck, two of them actually, and stuff like that. Um, so this is it's interesting because this is just one program, the Department says 1033 program. It's not even all the programs where they can buy uh, military equipment, and they often get military equipment through different ways. This is just one way that, and it's a popular one, that they receive uh, excess military equipment. And it, it's worth checking out. You can see what your uh, town has and just how ridiculous it is and then um, ask your officials why is your military i mean why is your police becoming you know militarized exactly we should all oppose the militarization of the police because it doesn't matter the, the whole intent of not having the military do police functions becomes meaningless when the police are militarized does it matter if we call them the military or the police if they end up having the same equipment they having yeah. the same function i don't think so so we should we should definitely oppose this what a bummer, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to share something that's not too much of a bummer, and that is uh, I'm going to now talk about the protests. So before I talk about my protest story, I just want to mention there's been a lot of protests across New Jersey against police brutality and in memory of, of George Floyd. There have been some extremely large protests. So, for example, in, in Hoboken, there was uh, 10,000 people at, at a rally, which is incredible. And all throughout the state, in uh, Maplewood, Teaneck, uh, I know Newark had one, Camden had one. I, I can't even keep track of all of them in New Jersey. There has been large protests in memory of George Floyd, but uh, more broadly uh, uh, about uh, making Black Lives Matter and also pro uh, against the totality of the police that just is daily 
happening not just in well specifically disproportionately in black and brown neighborhoods but but the police are, are brutal to pretty much anyone that's not rich and that's a huge problem and i went to a protest in my town so i went to one in florence township and it was only made the event was only made about like two days before so i had no idea what to expect because i was like oh this isn't a lot of time it's on a saturday maybe a lot of people will show up i have no idea and around 50 people showed up probably a little more than that which is which is pretty good for my for my small town and uh, actually it's really good especially with like i said what short notice there was and it, it was pretty great. Uh, people marched throughout the streets, kind of going on one of the major roads. Police were, from what I saw, restrained, didn't really do anything. I was only there for about an hour. The whole thing lasted about four hours. And one of the things that I liked a lot, which actually kind of made me a little proud of my town, was the amount of people that were coming out of their house to see what was going on and then cheering when they figured out what it was. And there was a couple people uh, who uh, put out tables with... Uh, because um, it was a really hot day, they put out tables with like ice water and stuff like that for people to take, and uh, there was there was a few of those. So I, it, it was just a really nice event. Uh, people were doing all the usual slogans of you know, no justice, no peace, no racist police. I know you went to one too in in your town. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, I actually went to Highland Park because I didn't know of any protests in my immediate neighborhood, but I I know the, the Highland Park area, and it was. My precaution about going to a protest and initially was I didn't want to go to one that was far away from where I lived and in an area that I was not familiar with because God forbid anything were to happen, I, I needed a way to get home. So, and I needed to know the area in case I needed to run to some kind of safe environment, you know what I mean? And so Highland Park had this wonderful event where it was a peaceful protest that ended in a rally. I think it was in the kind of like the sports fields behind, I think, a high school or elementary school in Highland Park. But they had the mayor of Highland Park cooperated and helped organize it with the um, the community organizers and there were people from the town council there. I think uh, an assembly person was there too, but you were seeing elected officials hear what the people wanted. <laughs> and they also announced at that, the rally that the state attorney general, all of the things that he passed, not solo, but everything that he's putting into order, like the, the licensing of police, it was announced there. Um, to everyone in the crowd and I don't think everyone under like really took it in because to hear it over like a megaphone and then to go home and read about it and you know educate myself on what exactly those measures in place would do for the police so it was actually going to protest and then hearing immediately this is what's happening and then going home and having that revelation of wow things are appearing to change for New Jersey. And I was really happy that that was my experience. You know, police were there. There was only one um, <laughs> outcast, make America great again, hat wearer um, who was in the crowd and he was filming. It was like he was doing like a Facebook live stream for his Trumper friends. But beyond him, everyone there was excited to be there. We're, we're peacefully protesting. Um, the cops came into the crowd and like walked around and just like checked it out. And it was a little tense when they did that, but you could tell that they were just, you know, making sure that the the situation was calm because we did have the 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 Trumper who was filming everyone, you know, causing a yeah. little bit of a, a ruckus. But it was beautiful. 
Uh, to my knowledge, uh, like I said, I left after about an hour. It was basically super hot. I couldn't really breathe with my mask on. Yeah. And as much as people were, my town has very small streets and very small sidewalks. So social distancing really wasn't able to happen. Uh, were people wearing masks? Like everyone that I saw yeah. in, in the Highland yeah. Park, everyone was wearing a mask. Everyone was wearing a mask. Yeah, everyone was. So to my knowledge, I didn't see any incident of like any Trumpers or anything maybe they were somewhere else they could have been undercover too that's possible um because i know my town has some uh, trump supporters that are pretty vocal but i'm thinking they actually didn't come out i don't know i'll have to ask around to see what happened after i left but i didn't hear anything on social media except for that the protest went well so i'm yeah. thinking there was i think it proceeded without any incident yeah so uh what what you had something you wanted to mention too about police reforms right so, like I said in the in the protest, they made an announcement seeing that, and it was basically like live breaking news at that moment. So it was kind of hard to really grasp what actually was happening. So this is according to policeone.com. So New Jersey State Attorney General announces police reforms following protests. So this was on June 3rd. So this article says, as protests continue in the Garden State across the nation over the killing of an unarmed black man, by police in Minneapolis, New Jersey's top law enforcement official has given an update on a series of efforts designed to improve police-community relations. Some changes include licensing police officers the way the state does with doctors, teachers, and lawyers. So the state attorney, he said that he was, quote, reeling from the footage of George Floyd's murder, and like so many Americans, I am angry. He said that New Jerseyans have been protesting this week, and the message, um, his message to the thousands is that we hear you, we see you, we respect you, we share your anger, and we share your commitment to change. So he's enacting a sweeping set of policing reforms designed to promote the culture of professionalism, accountability, transparency, and transparency moving forward. So the police, or the, the policies known as the Excellence in Policing Initiative was first implemented in December, he said. And during an appearance with Governor Murphy during a news conference on Tuesday, he said that the statewide use of force database is being expanded from its pilot program to collect data from all police departments starting July 1st. And this is a major thing because originally use of force accounts were taken in paper form, and this is digitizing that. So it's going to be expanded. It originally started in a pilot program. I forgot where. This article doesn't say but they are expanding it so that you're going to be able to have in like a, a digital database of all this stuff because everyone knows like a paper account of something can easily be, you know, misplaced or lost. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so he said that the use of force policy is also being updated for the first time in 20 years with input from quote, civil rights leaders, police unions, religious leaders, victim advocates, and community members to ensure that our policy reflects the value of New Jersey today. And he also said that an incident response team will be assembled within the Attorney General's Division on Civil Rights that can deploy to any major civil rights incident. He said that the team will serve a vital role to, quote, diffuse tension, healing a community after a moment of collective trauma. And he also says that the a pilot program will expand the crisis intervention team that brings together law enforcement officials, mental health professionals, and other stakeholders to give officers the skills they need to respond to an individual in psychiatric crisis in a way that minimizes the potential for injury. He said, quote, 
There's only one way to build trust between law enforcement and community. That's by working at it day after day, year after year in church basements and school gymnasiums during good times and bad. And then Murphy said additionally that the programs will quote, promote, promote trust and strengthen the bonds between law enforcement on the one hand and communities in which they serve on the other. So this is that action we're talking about seeing after these protests, during these protests and not stopping until we actually have accountability we actually have people who, if they are police, they're held accountable. And then if they are, you know, acting poorly, they are then removed, not just put on, you know, de- paid, like death paid administrative leave. leave. <laughs> you know, it's, well, it's a- I don't know if you've noticed, but there are a lot of cops getting fired right now without administrative leave, which never happens. So it's almost like the protests are working and people are, are, are fed up with this. Um, but the issue with that is a police officer who is fired can then go to a different precinct or a different. Exactly. That, that's and that's, that's why we need that. that. That's why we need that. We need that licensing, like you said, where, where they can basically be prohibited from serving uh, in the police after, yeah. you know, being an absolute failure of a police officer. Yeah. I'm very um, interested to see if New Jersey really leads the charge with this and then sees the, the, the same be brought throughout the country because it, any database is only as good as the data input. <laughs> yes. So you need to have a state by state breakdown, but then you also need the the communication across the borders to make sure that someone in New Jersey who loses their police license doesn't hop over the border to Pennsylvania, to Maryland, to New York, yeah. you know, Connecticut. It we needs also, to be all in one database. We need uh, independent, like truly independent review boards that have yeah. the power to fire uh, and punish police officers for the kind of uh, uh, crimes that they uh, routinely commit. And by independent, it means that, that literally they're independent from the police and nobody serving on them has a close relation or family member or a friend that is a police officer. They've never worked in, in law enforcement, all that kind of stuff. Because it's just unacceptable right now how I'm seeing so many things like just take New York as an example, because they've been having uh, their police have been going absolutely insane the past few weeks. Yeah. You'll have Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo basically say that they're going to have the police review like Oh, I, Cuomo said he didn't see any evidence that the police were uh, attacking uh, <laughs> protesters or whatever, which is crazy because I've seen like a hundred yeah. videos. You and, have these uh, and then he's, yeah, then he's going to have the police like, you know, investigate themselves. And it's like, we already know where that leads. We yeah. already know where the police go. When the police investigate themselves, they just come up with stuff like, you know, they hire that, uh, I'm slightly joking, but they hire the, the same kind of medical examiner that said that, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself, or Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> killed himself. Exactly. Uh, for the George Floyd thing, because because you saw the first thing they put out was that uh, he basically he didn't die from having his neck crushed. He basically uh, was gonna die anyway because of his med- uh, he had like bad health. And yeah. then you know then the family got an independent examiner and they're like, Nah, dude, you you choked him to death with your knee. That awesome. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's what happened. We need yeah, to break but... up that closeness between prosecutors, police. And medical examiners, which apparently medical examiners, a lot of them don't even like, like you don't need to have you study like forensics. You don't need to study like medical stuff to be a medical examiner for the police. You could just be some dude. Anyway, <laughs> it's a whole uh, uh, lot That's of That's another segment. <laughs> yeah. Casey, you're going to tell us about Thomas Edison's ghost phone. Like, what is that? His ghost phone? Yes. So Thomas Edison, beloved 
inventor and businessman and New Jerseyan. So he, I'm going to get into it, but to say he was eccentric, you, ha- you kind of have to be a little bit crazy in order to become this prolific inventor because you just have to constantly question everything and then test your theories and to be you know a reputable scientist as he was you know you constantly have to prove your your theories and it then has to be able to be reproven by other people in your community you know so so I'm going to give you a little brief history and I got this information from obviously Wikipedia and a couple of articles like uh, Weird New Jersey and there was another article and I'll cite them as I go on, but this site called Atlas Obscura. And so to give you a little history on Thomas Edison, he was born on February 11th, 1847. And he was an Aquarius. And he was, like I said, <laughs> so his mind's a little bit out there anyway. So he was, like I said, a businessman and American inventor. And some people will say he's America's greatest inventor because there's so many things that we have today that are based off his original designs. And it did have something that, like the light bulb that stands the test of time, you know, he's a genius. And he would work in industries like uh, electric power generation, like we said in a previous episode, he did that, that water generator, I think it's still in operation today in New Jersey. So the hydroelectric power station, and then he worked in mass communication, sound recording, and motion pictures, just to like name a few industries that he was involved in. And some of his inventions include the phonograph, the motion picture camera, and the long lasting practical electric light bulb. But what is lesser known about Edison is his late life obsession of the spirit world. Ooh. What, did he try to create the first like ghost tracking device or something? You're going to learn. You're going to learn. So like I said, he was he was born in 1847 in Ohio, and his family would later move to Michigan. So he spent most of his childhood in Michigan, but he would only spend a few months in actual school. So his mom ended up homeschooling him, and he learned most of his, his stuff. I don't even know. Like, he's a self-taught inventor and scientist and business person. Like, this is all from him and like I guess like he had mentors and people who taught him you know what they knew and then he built on it but most of his education came from this book called it's R.G. Parker's School of Natural Philosophy and then he also enrolled in a like a, a chemistry course at the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art. So to give you a little bit more insight into how I guess I called it earlier his eccentricity Edison was, from a young age, he had very bad hearing problems. And some say it was because he had scarlet fever as a kid. And some say it was because he had a lot of reoccurring ear infections when he was younger. But Edison would always change his reasoning by his poor hearing. He was basically, like, towards the end of his life, deaf in one ear. And he said it was a number of different kinds of injuries. Like, he once had a a lab in a train car. And one of his experiments, like, sent him out of the train car, like, an explosion, like, catapulted him out, and he hurt his ear. And then another story was that he was late for a train, and the the train conductor pulled him up by his ears. So he kept having reoccurring issues in hearing due to, like, a various number. Like, people, like, touching his ears and stuff? Yeah. Blowing things up? (laughs) 
<laughs> him blowing things up and people touching his ears. And he, you know, it's just, he's always had a hearing problem. So he, I'm going to quote this directly from Wikipedia. So quote, being completely deaf in one ear and barely hearing in the other, Edison will listen to a music player or piano by chomping into the wood to absorb the sound waves into his skull. The waves would then pass through his cochlea and into the auditory nerve and finally into his brain. Due to this method of listening, he could not stand vocal vibrato or hear at the highest frequencies. So like... <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> he didn't let basically being deaf keep him from hearing. So, and he was constantly, like, the fact that he invented the, the phonograph and, like, all these different recording devices, his hearing impairment did not prevent him from working in the auditory industry field. So, he is just, uh, according, he's just so phenomenally just optimistic and not letting anything prevent him from basically living his best life. So, according to... <laughs> Um, this article from we're in New Jersey, according to his uh, biographer, Robert Cannot, so C-O-N-O-T, quote, Edison succeeded because he was an eternal optimist who would not let himself or others consider the possibility of failure. Because he was an unconventional thinker, a uh, duh, he <laughs> who, <laughs> who accumulated the resources that enabled him to transform his ideas into reality because he charged ahead when others hung back, because he demolished the opposition and bowled over Im impediments. So again, according to this weird New Jersey article, in 1878, Edison, this is where it gets a little spooky, briefly connected with an organization of mystics known as the Aryan Theospic, Theospic, I can't pronounce it, Society. <laughs> it was here where he discussed the role of science and technology in mysticism with their leader, Madame Helena Belvaski. So when he ended up, while he ended up leaving the group and went on to deny ever being associated with the group in the first place. That's these sketchy. <laughs> these experiences got him thinking about different Eastern religious ideas, particularly reincarnation. And I have to note that when you Google like Aryan Theosophic Society and Edison, there are no results, but he does have connections to like other philosophical groups like there was one with henry ford where they were like naturalists they said but it's this is a time where you have people doing um seances it was like a whole movement it's like a spiritualism movement in this time period so you have people who are claiming to be clairvoyants you have people claiming to you know be psychic and do all these other different things and you have a lot of hoaxes going on like there were two sisters who said that they were psychic and they communicated with each other through like taps on like the ground that they would like train each other. Like it was a different language. So you have a lot of people who are in this, this, this time period who are trying to manipulate people and some who are just curious. So Edison just become like, he's a naturally curious person. So when he gets into contact with this group, even though there's really no real record that he was associated with them. And this was back in the, you know, 1800s. So you could, do whatever you wanted like this is <laughs> there's really no records beyond your own if you keep them so i just wanted to note that our intern might have to do some real deep investigation in this to figure out what what really happened but this all brings me to the least successful and lesser known invention of edison's which is the spirit phone 
So <laughs> according to this article from Atlas Obscura titled Dial a Ghost on Thomas Edison's least successful invention, the spirit phone, in 1920, the inventor shocked the public when he told American Magazine, quote, I have been at work for some time building an apparatus to see if it is possible for personalities which have left this earth to communicate with us. And Edison's idea became known as the spirit phone and caused a media storm. So for years, many historians believe this invention to be a joke or a hoax because no blueprints or prototypes of a spirit phone could actually be found. But while he may not have actually contacted the dead, there is evidence that he experimented with the idea. So in 2015, the French journalist Philippe Baudouin, B-A-U-D-O-U-I-N, found a rare version of Edison's diary in a thrift store in France. So this version of the diary included a chapter that was not printed in the widely known 1948 English edition called The Diary and the Sundry, Observations of Thomas Alva Edison. And the missing chapter was dedicated to his theory of the spirit world and how it might be possible to contact it. So the journalist republished it, republished the French edition as Le Royaume, R-O-Y-A-U-M-E de blah, 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 blah. (laughs) R-O-Y-E-N. Yeah. Royaume. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds a lot better. Um, So his theory, and this is from the Weird New Jersey article, his theory was that, um, and this was like the the most watered down version that I could understand. Um, So his theory was that the basis of a human's character and that memory was composed of small physical particles. And these particles defined intelligence, personality, and everything else about a person. So Edison thought these particles were from outer space and formed in swarms and transplanted themselves within people's minds. Death, therefore, occurred when these little, quote, little people, Edison thought each particle had its own consciousness, disagreed amongst each other. Edison theorized that if the exact same group of particles could be put back together, then a a dead person's personality would return because each person's pattern of the small particle people was unique. And he used photographic plates in an attempt to chart these swarms of little people particles but never succeeded in reanimating a person or as was his ultimate goal, allowing them to talk from beyond the grave. And this is a thing that um, I've seen before because it was Einstein's theory of, uh, of energy of like, it can't be lost or destroyed. And this is Dude. like another thing Dude. with like ghost culture, like trying to get the scientific backing of that it exists because if, energy cannot be created or destroyed when a person dies their energy is supposed to be around still and it feeds into this theory of that your personality is like your energy so when you die it goes away and you'll see a lot of in the horror movies like the spirit will be this swarm of like black you know mass that comes out of someone so and that also, was also big- it's popularized in, in shows like ghost adventures where they have like these pseudo scientific equipment to detect the energy of ghosts or or, yeah. or, or whatever like that it, it is it's interesting the um the, the that like it seems like they're they're continuing along the lines of edison's like failed venture here exactly and the, that was another thing in the spiritual time during this time with some fake seance people would actually there's this one notorious woman who claimed to be psychic she would swallow like cheesecloth and regurgitate it during the seance so it looked as if something was being expelled from her and it convinced people in like the dark shady room that 
their like loved one was communicating to them. So this whole idea of like something swarming from you that is your personality and basically your essence is something that was very big in this this time with the, the spiritual movement. Um, think, think about how convincing a lot of this stuff must have been, especially like all the uh, crazy electrical instruments at a time when like electricity was like starting to actually like people were starting to actually experience electricity in their daily lives more frequently, but like it's still super new. Yeah. Like how convincing was that? Must that have been for people to <laughs> see like you know two rods suddenly just like spark and they're like there's ghosts here or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the thing. Thomas Edison before he died, he revisited. I think he, Wikipedia said that he bought the town that he was born in and he returned back to his home. And he was shocked to see that they were still using candlelight and they weren't using electricity, which is what he invented and he originated from there. So it's it's a time. So that's why I want to like highlight it is that it was a time where simultaneously you had technology along with what we would consider like the dark ages of only candlelight and no indoor plumbing. And it coexisted. And it's the time the automobile was created because, you know, Henry Ford was around this time and also the the horse and buggy still existed on the same roads you had this kind of like how we if we were to go to Amish country we'd be so shocked to see people live like this but it was even more so shocking at this time because you were seeing one side be built up while the other one was staying the same so and this is New Jersey history for you so Henry Ford would later take <laughs> Edison to see, I think it was a parapsychologist, and then Edison would switch gears into not being so obsessed with um, death and the, uh, the ability to communicate with the other side. And he went to a less controversial field of trying to study telepathy. So he would try to... <laughs> oh, less controversial. Le- less controversial. So he at the end of his life, he was basically putting these like electrical like uh, wires on his head and like different kinds of like circuits on him and like put it on his friends and family and see if they could communicate using their minds, but also using the electro things that he was creating. Less controversial, more <laughs> still of the time um, of experimenting with uh, the limits or what could be considered no longer a limit of the human mind. But that's really the story of the unknown story of New Jersey's famous inventor extraordinaire, Thomas Edison, and his ghost phone. <laughs> oh, that, that's just crazy. Like, I just can't imagine living in a time where, like, again, like, electricity's new, and then, you know, like, imagine your buddies with, like, Edison, and he's like, hey, come on, man, like, put this thing on your head. It might shock <laughs> you, but tell me if you hear my thoughts. And you're like, yeah. no, dude, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Yeah, and he actually, there was one story where um, one of his, because he, what was great about Edison was that he was a, like a, a team builder, you know, he didn't, he wasn't alone in his research, and he wasn't alone in his inventions, he always sought knowledge from other people, and he always shared his work and wanted to expand what he knew, because he knew other people knew more about certain elements, so in order to be, he never tried to be a master of all, you know what I mean? He really respected that other people had knowledge too, and he wanted to build things with them, so when his one colleague died, and he had reportedly shared his his research about this ghost one that he was trying to make and, you know, all the stuff that he was learning and researching with his colleague who passed. And he said that colleague who passed, if it, if it mattered and if it worked, that 
that person would specifically return to him and his ghost phone and communicate with him. But I don't think it happened because we don't have a ghost phone today. Um... <laughs> Can you imagine how annoying it would be if, if we did have a ghost phone, though? Like, oh, my great, my, my ancestors calling me while I'm just trying to, like, watch a movie, being like, <laughs> like, you have to have more ambition than this. Like, what are you doing? It's like, stop. Like, you're dead. Like, yeah. Let me live my life. Uh, yeah, yeah, you yeah, have yeah. your turn. It's my turn. Yeah. <laughs> but again, or, it's... Go ahead. No, you, you go on. Yeah, or, like, just, like, the weird things that, that, like, they'll call you up on, like, just because the cultures were different in the past. Like, I just can't imagine, like, yeah. how a ghost phone would even work or, like, why it would be desirable if it did, like. Yeah, it's it's tough because it also would be so scary. Like, I think, like, you would think that if you died, my assumption with it is that you now know everything because you're, like, part of something else. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. why would you call me? You know what I mean? It's like aliens coming to me. Like, I yeah. have nothing to give you, alien. Um... Yeah, you exactly. have more for me to learn. <laughs> yeah. You learned how to use a ghost phone and you didn't even have electricity. So <laughs> you tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's Thomas Edison and a little history and a message to all to continue being an optimist and learn that from medicine. You know, sometimes you just have to change things very slowly. You know, so maybe you can't create a ghost phone, yeah. but maybe you could create something that could make you people's minds you know really really it's a optimistic message about switching industries which is yeah. very common for us millennials <laughs> so thanks thomas edison thanks thomas edison but that's it that's it for this episode all right yeah that's it for this week's episode of jersey matters thank you for listening be sure to check us out on itunes drop us a rating yeah. uh make it a good one then uh check out our twitter at jersey underscore matters and our instagram jersey matters podcast as well as our website jerseymatterspodcast.com thank you for listening uh hope you have a good week this is mike i'm signing off and this is casey